Hey everybody, this is Christian Cison coming to you live from Studio 66. Uh, this is actually probably going to be our last recording at this location, uh, maybe moving to new digs for next month's episode, but today we're going to talk to you about permanency. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I want to uh, go over some updates based on a couple of uh, previous podcasts we've had. Uh, I know that everybody is always, always excited about opioids, and uh, for New York, New York people, uh, the budget was recently passed, and a big part of it had to do with a statewide public initiative to really, really go after the rising costs to all parties uh, in, in this epidemic that's really going nationwide. So uh, you may have uh, joined into our budget webinar that uh, was live on April 12th. Uh, if you haven't, please go check that out. That's always a good start-off point. We're always going to get more information as well, so uh, please feel free to reach out if you have any questions on that issue. But opioid, uh, opioids are currently still being litigated with um, pretty high ferocity now that there is a, more, uh, a, a different litigation option uh, with that RFA2 for New York people. And another episode that got uh, some popularity was uh, the one I did with Tim Kaine. It was, it was basically to get the claimant's perspective on some issues uh, we face in, in, with the defend from day one strategy. Essentially, I'd asked Tim, you know, what does the claimant do from day one? How can we use that to help us? And we've got some good feedback on it. Some of it included claimant's attorneys and adversaries telling me that I was a little too harsh and I should tone it down. But uh, other than that... Um, we did get some good feedback. Please continue to keep rolling it in, uh, and I appreciate the comments and reviews. Kind of brings me to my guest this this month, uh, Mr. Joe Jones. Hello, everyone. Is uh, a former petitioner's attorney, and we have fortunately brought him back to the good side. Um, he is the main dude of our New Jersey practice, uh, which is strong and running with ferocity. I, I actually have a request for business cards to say the main dude as well. So, yeah, that's, that's Okay, <laughs> all right. Just as long as, as, long as that works, uh, you know, I'm, I'm totally fine with that as well. Welcome to the show, Joe. No, I'm glad to be here, Christian. I appreciate the invite. Okay. So what we want to talk, uh, talk about today, Joe, is permanency. And, you know, obviously it differs from state to state, but the notion of closing a case with permanency is relative to all of our listeners and all of our clients across multiple states. So let's start off with, uh, you know, kind of an easy one. Uh, how long does it typically take uh, a petitioner or a claimant uh, to get to permanency, to get to maximum medical improvement? Okay. Well, that really depends upon the type of injury, the seriousness of the injury. Um, what I can tell you, we, there is a certain time period we need to be concerned about when it comes to permanency in New Jersey, uh, and that is the time period from MMI to when you can actually get your permanency exams and assess permanency. There's a 26-week waiting period of MMI determination before we can assess permanency. And that's sort of like a cooling-off period. It allows the petitioner to sort of settle into his injuries, uh, make sure there's no further treatment that's needed, maybe a month or two months down the line. Uh, and then basically uh, after that time period, we're able to get our perm exams. Okay, so that, that's kind of interesting. So. Uh, you get the MMI finding, and there's almost like this cooling off period to see if that's really going to stick. Almost right? like, it, is it really MMI? Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, 
And, and how, how, just out of curiosity, how often do those reports stick? Do you, do you have to go back and, and, and fix them because more treatment is needed? Or It's, it's a small percentage. Uh, sometimes the, uh, you know, in New Jersey, another difference is the respondent gets control treatment. So we get to pick the doctors that the petitioner goes to, uh, unlike you guys in New York where the petitioner or the claimant gets to pick all the doctors he wants. Uh, so it's much easier for us to control treatment. And a lot of times, sometimes when the petitioner is put back to work a little too soon, there are some aggressive doctors out there who uh, are of the opinion that, oh, you're fine, go back to work, you know, even though the guy's arm's hanging off on the side or something like that. So uh, it does happen where someone's put back to work a little too quickly. And when that happens, there, we'll, we'll sometimes get a letter from the attorney uh, indicating that, look, th I think this guy really needs another look at his knee or his arm or whatever it was. And then so sometimes that does come into play. But it's a small percentage of cases. And you brought up a good point about, you know, uh, you know the, the physicians or the doctors that are being used, right? In New Jersey, when you have a say in, in the treatment, uh, typically, I'm, I'm guessing, I could be wrong here, but I'm guessing that uh, the doctors generally find MMI quicker because there's no real incentive to prolong the treatment on their side, is there? That's correct. You're right. I mean, their, their bills are getting paid for by the carrier, uh, I guess, you could make the assumption that the longer they treat, the more they get paid, but they know who they're getting paid by, so they want to get referrals the next time around. So they do what they're supposed to do and get the guy back to work. And, you know, uh, for our New York people, we definitely face a, an issue with that because it's the uh, employer and carrier side that actually has to get that MMI finding first to force an opinion. Um, we have to be aggressive enough to get that one down to start the process, right? So... Um, that's a very interesting uh, breakdown between the two states. Uh, I know that um, you guys have uh, certainly a different issue to tackle when you guys are directing treatment from both sides. Um, but how does it help the defense uh, to know when um, the MMI uh, cooling period, as you put it, is kind of set in stone? Does it, does it help us? Does it hurt us? Which, which one is, is probably... Uh, or, or is that more effective or less effective? Well, it, it's an important uh, timeline uh, from the carrier's perspective. They get to stop paying temp. And any, any chance we can get as an attorney for the respondent to get them to stop paying benefits and save some money, uh, we certainly want to do that. So once MMI is determined, there's realistically no more medical bills they're paying. Temporary disability has been cut off at that point. The guy's back to work. There are then no benefits paid until permanency or a permanency award is established. So uh, it, you could go six months, eight months, a year and a half until you have a, an actual settlement of the case, and the guy's not receiving benefits that entire time. I, I just have to say, I, <laughs> I, I think we can hear footsteps of all the New York adjusters <laughs> running to do New Jersey work, yeah. uh, because uh, essentially unless uh, you know, the MMI finding from the defense side says that there's no permanent disability, it's essentially conceding uh, ongoing disability, and, and a lot of times we still have to c continue payments while the claimant goes and gets his perm report. Yeah. So that's that's a yeah, very you, interesting You and issue. I have talked about this a lot, the differences of New Jersey and New York, and I, I only practice in New Jersey, not New York. But Lucky um, you. Yeah, it is amazingly different, and especially in the control aspect. Um, that's one of the major differences. And, I mean, you guys are basically fighting an uphill battle at all times to get the claimant cut off whereas we get to just unilaterally cut off as soon as the doctor says so, and then the petitioner, the claimant, has to fight to get benefits back again. 
So it's a, it's a much different battlefield. It's a, it's a very interesting perspective, and and you know I might I'm gonna have to say this again and again and again. So all the adjusters on the New York side, please 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 don't run away from uh, New York work. It's I, I still think all the attorneys should be running as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you might I love I love practicing in New Jersey. I, I really love it, uh, but I do acknowledge when when we talk about this or I talk to anybody else in the firm. Uh, how difficult of a job you guys really have in New York, and, uh, and the, like I said, the severe uphill battle you have to fight uh, at all times. Well, it's certainly a challenge, um, and uh, you know that's why we tell our clients all the time uh, we have to do something in order to get avoid getting in order to avoid getting hit with everything. Right. right? Um, so it's a stop the bleeding kind of uh, uh, situation. And, and just real quick to stop the mass exodus of all the adjusters running to New Jersey right now, um, it is still a pro-petitioner state. Most of the judges are there to award benefits to the petitioners. They're not a neutral judge like you'd find in municipal court or something like that who's just going to hear both sides of the story and decide. They want to provide benefits to the petitioner. So in that sense, we do have an uphill battle of maybe with a Section 20 case, which is a dismissal without any reopener rights, uh, or trying to limit the amount of permanency, keep it as low as possible. Um, That's where we have the difficulty and the fighting that we have to do, because the judges are inclined to just you know, well, he's hurt. Give him a lot of money, and, and we have to fight against that. I, I'm actually really glad you said that because I don't want anybody to think that doing New Jersey work is easy by any means. I mean, there's still still a, an uphill battle, as you stated. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure you're probably one of the hardest working Jersey attorneys that I, I've ever met. So at least in this room. Oh, oh okay. Well, you know, if, if you're going to classify me to that, man, I, I think we're going to have to veer off topic and actually debate. But uh, you know, for purposes of, of getting through well, this, New Jersey attorney in this room. <laughs> I guess you know. I guess that I'm hurt by the fact that I'm licensed in New Jersey, but not, oh, not I forgot doing that you are. That's any, right. That's right. New Jersey work. Well, I'm clearly working harder than you in New Jersey. Then <laughs> I guess that's true. That's true. You have a good argument there. Now, um, you might have already mentioned this, but. Now, if you do get the cutoff treatment, cutoff temp, are, are there actually any drawbacks to pushing permanency, or is it really just a favorable position? No, they're, they're actually uh, – and it's sort of that need for extra treatment uh, during that 26-week time period that, that could be a problem. Um, one of the things the attorneys can do, although there's that 26-week period, uh, a lot of the attorneys just automatically, like within a two-month time period, schedule their perm exams within that 26 weeks, although technically we're not supposed to. Um, usually it's by consent. The attorneys are like, ah, let's go to perm. Let's get them examined. Uh, but when you do that sooner than the 26 weeks and then the guy needs more treatment, then now you're ruining your perm exam, your perm report. It's no good anymore because now the guy's had to go out and get other treatment. He's going to wind up getting another perm report. So you can act a little too quickly. Uh, you do have to be careful of that. You can't schedule the perm exam the day after MMI. That's just going to be basically useless to you. Right. Okay. No, that, that makes sense. And, and um, you know, Joe, Joe mentioned, uh, you know, stopping the treatment and things like that. For New York, obviously, we, wanna, we want to uh, know the ins and outs of Form C8.1. Uh, a lot of times I say in, in trainings and webinars, fill out all the defenses that apply because that's going to be our best tool to stop treatment uh, when it deviates from the guidelines, uh, when they are disobeying uh, procedural requirements. Uh, use that to your defense because we don't have that option to just cut it off like they do in New Jersey. Um, okay, so talk to me about a case then where the the petitioner seems to be on temp for quite some period of time, right? 
Uh, hypothetically, we can imagine a situation where maybe there might be multiple surgeries or um, our own doctor that we are choosing for defense is not finding MMI. Um, is there anything we can do uh, to, to push that, that process, or are we kind of just stuck until that, those reports come in? No, we, we can do some stuff, and that does uh, frequently occur, as you in, uh, indicated, Christian, where sometimes the doctors, although a respondent doctor, uh, does seem to be providing a lot of treatment, sometimes well and above and beyond what really should be expected for that type of injury. Um, if we seem to be in a pattern where the doctor just keeps having visits, nothing really is going on, adjusting medication, um, and it's, this is just going on for months and months, and obviously temp is continuing at this point, we have to try and push that to a close. Uh, one of the ways we can do that, you can do a second opinion exam where you send to another doctor saying, look, doc, is this treatment still necessary and reasonable considering the type of injury? The other thing you can do, and I don't know uh, if you can really do this in New York, but in New Jersey, because we control treatment, you can also contact the doctors. So I can write a letter to the doctor saying, hey, doc, you know, are you, can you tell me, is this palliative care where you're just making them feel a little bit more comfortable, or is this still curative? If it's curative, we do have to pay for it, and we still have to continue treatment. But if the doctor writes back and says, no, actually, this is just palliative, I'm you know, adjusting his medication every two months, we can then stop treatment at that point. That is, that is very interesting. Yeah. So you, you can kind of uh, get around the whole MMI report by you know, um, being aggressive as, as a, you know, an advocate for the client. Yes. Uh, does that happen uh, often? And it, when it happens, are, is it successful in getting um, – uh, does that start the cooling off period, actually, is a better question. If, right? if the doctor does write back and say that it is just palliative, not curative care – um, and he just keeps having usually usually it's pain management. It's a it's a follow up appointment to adjust medication because you know the petitioner keeps complaining that whatever medication he's on is not working well enough. Um, at that point, when he declares it's palliative care he's providing, that's MMI. We can then move forward with that twenty six week waiting period and go to perm. Okay, that's that's actually pretty interesting because you know in New York, our we like to uh, um, focus on labor market attachment surveillance uh, in pursuit of fraud, you know, certain non-medical issues to kind of uh, push the claimant who is on temporary disability, uh, maybe maybe even just because both doctors can't find MMI, we use those defenses to kind of push settlement in lieu of permanency when permanency is not available. So we may not have those kinds of options in New York to, uh, you know, essentially uh, get around a report that doesn't say MMI and find that, oh, hey, I can stop treatment if you find that it's palliative. Uh, that, that kind of makes sense, and, and I would hope that uh, more states than New Jersey uh, adopt that kind of initiative because I think the, the goal for everybody is claim closure and making sure that claimants are compensated for what they're actually hurt with. Or, you know, it, don't extend the process. It's going to be worse for everybody going forward. Um, okay, so we talked about uh, a couple of things, uh, you know, permanency in general. Um, I want to talk about something that's, that, that is, some, that is a, an issue in New York, and a lot of it's based on current costs of defense versus potential future costs. In New York, we have a lot of uh, cases where before a claimant reaches MMI, he or she may return to work, and because of that, you know, 
technically you might get well, not technically, but more likely you get less treatment because you're, you're work, back to work full time. And uh, in New York, sometimes our clients decide to close the f- close files administratively. Uh, does that is there any kind of similar um, pattern for cases in New Jersey where you can kind of issue permanency off to the side because hey, there's no ongoing issue? No, not really. Um, first, with, with regard to your return to work MMI uh, comment, in Jersey, it's very rare that the MMI, that a, a petitioner will return to work and not be found to have reached, have reached MMI. Usually those occur at the same time. Now, uh, if, if a petitioner is found, uh, for example, a doctor can decide um, the petitioner can return to work with restricted duties. Can't carry maybe more than 20 pounds, don't do excessive bending, and if the employer has a light duty job, they do have to provide that light duty job to the petitioner. If the petitioner, if the employer does not have a light duty job, maybe they're a warehouse, everything that they do is heavy duty uh, or full duty, the petitioner does not go back to work, we continue to pay temp until he's MMI with no restrictions. But usually the return to work, it's rare that someone goes back to work and still has treatment going on. Uh, Sometimes you might have a couple of physical therapy sessions still finishing up, but he's been returned to work, That, that happens occasionally or more of a pain management thing where he is going back for more medicine but still returned to work. So it's not really a situation where you're gonna have somebody back to work and still getting extensive treatment. Usually those two things, the MMI and the return to work, are, are, they coincide with one another. Okay, well that's, uh, you know, I, I, you know, you learn something new every day. Yeah. You know, I'm, 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 uh, I'm interested in that kind of issue because on the New York side, um, when we see that it's kind of stagnant, you know, sometimes our clients will decide to administratively close the file, but it's not closed for purposes of the Workers' Compensation Board. Uh, if another uh, uh, treatment issue comes up or if the claimant has to leave work because of the accident again, that claim can then just be reopened. Okay. And a lot of times we're faced uh, with a position that we're uh, against the wall even more, you know, essentially, because the file has been closed um, and we have – a difficult time assessing how to best go about this when uh, a claim essentially gets uh, cl- administratively closed and then brought back again. Okay. Um, I know in New Jersey, because we've talked about this, uh, there are reopeners. Yes. Right. Okay. So that might be something more similar to what I'm discussing, right. where you guys kind of think it's you wash your hands clean of this claim. This guy's good. He's back to work. And then he shows up again right. on your desk. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. That's, uh, that, and that's probably similar, I guess, to what you're saying. And I, when you refer to administrative closure in New York, I'm guessing there's no real legal work done at that point. Like the file just, you wait for the next step. And that's usually, I guess, prompted by the, the Workers' Compensation Board or the petitioner. The claimant. Essentially, well, it would, be, uh, it would be our clients who are waiting for the next step because, okay. you know, when they administratively close and they tell us to close, you know, we're, we're, you do uh, nothing until something else happens. With, right. Okay. We're not doing anything until our client tells us to, to, okay. to go act. So for us in New Jersey, the clients, the, the client, the, the respondents, never going to close their file administratively while the case is pending. But you're right. If we have a settlement uh, with reopener rights, which is called a settlement under an order approving settlement, um, the petitioner has the right to come back for more treatment, and he can get more medical benefits, more temporary disability, as well as a potentially more permanency, uh, if his injuries get worse, he has two years from the date he gets the award or his last check received 
to reopen his case. So when we settle a case, we send a, a sort of a closing letter to the client. Case settled today. Here's the order approving settlement. Please pay the following checks as per the order. So we tell them how to disperse. That basically administratively closes their file um, and ours. Now, on the respondent's end, the, the carrier's end, there's two different ways they can close a file. If they have an order approving settlement where they're making payments out weekly and it goes beyond the settlement date, which happens often, they don't technically close their file because they're still making those payments. Um, what they hope for and what everybody hopes for on the respondent's end in New Jersey is what's called Section 20. Section 20 settlement I think is similar to your Section 32 in New York where it's, it's full, full and final closure, like all issues. There's no more treatment. There's no uh, more medical bills being paid. They're going to receive money as a settlement, and we're never going to see them again for that accident. Joe, have you been listening in on my training sessions with associates there in this firm? There may have been one or two that I've interrupted and listened in on, yes. Okay. <laughs> as All well right. as your podcast. So I do know Section 32 is the only thing I really know about New York. <laughs> right, right. right. I, I, nobody saw this, but I, I paid Joe to say something nice about the podcast. <laughs> but uh, that, that $10 actually, well spent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 10, 10, easy 10, right? Yeah, easy 10. Okay. Uh, I, I think that's really interesting because from, from our perspective in New York, uh, obviously, to to our New York listeners, it, it's a case by case basis. But I'm of the proponent that we need to get to that New Jersey level where we can get an adjudication of permanency and get an adjudication, even if the claimant is back to work and not seeking treatment. Because if you if the administrative closure happens and then it's reopened with new exposure that you haven't planned for. You're up against the wall, and you're not really as prepared as you would be with a file constantly being open. Right. So uh, I, I totally get it. You're, you're, you're going against a, a temporary cost, which you don't have to, to deal with. But a lot of times, especially for certain cases, uh, we need to be aware of the potential future exposure that might come on a case if we just administratively close a file. But you know, I guess that's what my podcast is for, just standing on a soapbox sometimes. Right, right, yeah. you know, uh, uh, we we do understand there are certainly some files that you want to administratively close because there is almost a zero percent chance of it being reopened by the claimant um, or even the petitioner in New Jersey uh, for certain cases. Yeah. Okay. Now, this next portion of the show is called Guess the Outcome. Uh, I'm usually picking a New York board panel decision, oh God, bold don't. board review, <laughs> or a third department case. Uh, but my, my answer will be Section 32. I don't know what the question is, but that will be my answer. And, and I was worried that you'd say something like that or just refer to the fact that you know, you're not licensed or barred in New York and try to get out of this. So I actually picked a New Jersey Supreme Court case. Fantastic. Five facts, Joe, and we'll see how you do. Okay. Okay. I'm we ready. have a claimant. You know, uh, let me give the listeners uh, the name of the case. It's Husser versus United Airlines. United's been in some pretty uh, uh, deep... Uh, do do. Yeah, in the, I, I don't past think you couple. should uh, resist getting up out of your chair. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, we'll, <laughs> we'll see if, if, if uh, treatment and customer service is better 
with them. But for now, we'll, we'll go at it from a neutral perspective. I'm okay. wondering, as a workers' comp attorney, if he was on a business trip, maybe that, that might oh, be a boy. workers' comp Oh, injury. boy. <laughs> well, you know, actually, I think he was a doctor that didn't want to get off the plane because he had to be at, an, at the office tomorrow morning. Oh, with appointments and stuff. So okay. I don't know if you've just created a claim for someone <laughs> in Louisville, Kentucky, or Chicago. Um, hopefully, there's good defense right. uh, for United in that case. But, um, okay, we have... Uh, a New Jersey case here, uh, the petitioner had a 2005 injury and was resolved in 2009 with a judicial award of permanent partial total. Okay. Oh, Joe, you're taking notes. First I, this one. This is important. I want to make sure I get the right answer. I'm so happy. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, other than the ambiguous calling a, oh, I really don't what partial total those, those seem to be oxymorons but I'm gonna, I guess I'll move on <laughs> uh, so yeah your first fact welcome to New Jersey <laughs> 2005 injury resolved in 2009 with an award of permanent partial total now second fact is before the 2009 award the petitioner had returned to work for United and actually had a new accident in 2008 okay and in 2011 Presumptively on the heels of both of those accidents, she applied to modify the 2005 award. And that led to a five-day trial involving medical testimony and lay witness testimony regarding both accidents and the return to work. Okay. Okay. The fourth fact is after the trial, the judge found a 10% increase in the permanent disability. Finally, fifth fact is that the claimant appealed based on a failure to consider the return-to-work aspect and also arguing that the judge didn't specifically state why he had made the increase. Now, okay. here comes uh, you know, the appellate division in New Jersey. I know it's limited facts, but how do you think the court would rule in this case? All right. Uh, there's some unknown factors here, just based on the couple of notes that I just wrote. So the accident's in 2005. They settled the case in 2009, and you indicated there's a 2008 new accident prior to the settlement. So what we don't know is if the order approving settlement in 2009, when they settled the case, if it included any kind of a credit or um, some kind of an adjustment due to the, the subsequent accident. So, so that's, the, that's the, something I'd like to know. But yeah, the medicals, the medicals. It appears that it, it did involve some of uh, those facts because you know the, I, the court doesn't go into detail about both accidents. You know, to, to the extent that I would be able to know everything, but right. it, they do mention that the the 2009 award or, or the settlement included medical records after the 2008 accident. Okay. So we have to, I guess, hope that they incorporated. Seems like they probably included in their assessment of the 2009 settlement whatever had gone on in that other accident. I, I would agree with you, okay. at least up until that date. All right, so then you get the 2011 reopener, and the judge awards, you said, a 10% increase, and then it gets appealed because the judge didn't really put his reasons on the record as to why the increase existed. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I'm going to give you a, an extra maybe a 5A or a sixth fact <laughs> okay. here because, you know, there is... It's it's a seven seven page decision from from the appellate division appellate division and they they actually state that he provided a comprehensive outline of the decision. 
Right. So, um, because you're so nice, you get a bonus sixth pack. Oh, thanks. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully uh, that helps you out. Okay. So it sounds like if there was testimony of the doctors, if there was test lay witnesses as well uh, on the reopener, the judge's opinion as to the increase was probably based on not only lay testimony, the petitioner testifying as to the increased disability, the increased limitations perhaps that he has, um, but medical testimony as well. Uh, in New Jersey, what we do on reopeners uh, is we get another perm report uh, when the treatment's done, if there's a new treatment on the reopener. And that new perm report, the doctors have the previous reports as well to review, so they can say, uh, our doctors a lot of times come back saying there's no increase in disability. Uh, I believe, you know, there was a 7.5% disability before, there's a 7.5% now. Uh, and their doctors often come back as saying there's definitely an increase in disability, and that's where we start to fight about how much of a, an increase, if at all. So it seems like the 10% increase is probably something that's reasonable. Again, I haven't seen the medical records, and I think the judge, uh, having seen and actually heard lay testimony as well as medical testimony, maybe if he didn't say in his decision the exact reasons for the increase, it's probably clear in the record why the, the increase was, was warranted. So I think the appellate division is probably going to uphold that, the, 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 uh, the workers' comp judge's opinion. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, Lois LLC attorneys are five for five. Ooh. <laughs> oh. So uh, uh, I haven't stumped one yet. I, okay. you know, I've actually gotten mad after a couple, maybe <laughs> three, uh, after it was three for three. And I really, really, really tried to kind of make it a little difficult. But uh, Joe's correct here. Um, in this case, I, I wanted to highlight really something that's really important from uh, web, past webinars and past podcast episodes, and that's the, the defend from day one strategy here. Because in this case, we have a judge who very you know, uh, clearly put down his reasons for the decision, and it appears that the claimant or the petitioner in this case really appealed just because, you know, hey, I've got nothing to lose kind of thing. And, you know, we see those sometimes too, but the abuse of discretion standard was used by the court, and they didn't find that the judge had really done anything wrong, and the case in, in cases like that, the findings are going to be upheld. In yeah. New York too, right? Yeah. We need to present a substantial evidence uh, as to why the law judge made a mistake, whether it be error of fact or law, and I think what we can talk about here, at least from both states, is the work leading up to that final decision by the judge. Have we done enough, and have we put forth our best arguments? Yeah, no, I agree. And, and as you stated, I think the appellate division, probably in both states, they do give the, the trier fact, the lower judge, a lot of discretion. They are the ones interviewing the witnesses. They're seeing the testimony. They're, they're judging credibility based on what they actually watch happen in court, and the appellate judges don't have that luxury. So they do give them a lot of discretion as to their decisions um, before really deciding to overturn them for, for reasons. So. You know, so, I, and I actually have to add, uh, after the last episode, I had a, uh, a couple of people put an over and under on how many times I said defend from day one. So I'm going to say it additional times if they've <laughs> made that bet again, defend from day one. It's really important uh, in, in all cases, but standard of appeal that's being, that, that's being used by appellate courts and appellate boards 
is actually important to know when before you even get there, right? Correct. If you're do if you're doing everything correct from day one, you may not even have to appeal. You may be able to settle. Um, these are things that are very very significant in assessing future exposure, future costs, things like that. Right. So again, Joe, uh, five for five, you've made it. Uh, so congratulations. Um, I do want to promote again the uh, webinar that was uh, done live on April 12th regarding the, the budget changes in New York. It has drastic effects on schedule loss of use uh, and permanent partial disability. So please check that out. Uh, when more information becomes available, uh, you'll be armed with a lot of, lot of different weapons to, to um, go after your cases and make sure they're not going crazy over the moon with exposure. Um, I'm also want. I, I'm also going to promote uh, uh, an appearance by the New Jersey team here at Lois LLC. Uh, the North Jersey Claims Association is having a meeting on the final Thursday. You, do you know the date? The twenty seventh. Twenty seventh is the the Thursday. Uh, we're we're doing a special trivia night. Is that is that right, Joe? That is correct. Uh, team Jersey has spent quite a lot of time coming up with various trivia questions. It's about 80% workers' comp related, and we threw in some non-workers' comp related. Okay, uh, so okay. So study up on your movie trivia and stuff like that. But um, there's going to be prizes. There's going to be a first, second, and third place uh, team that wins. A um, am I eligible for any of these absolutely prizes? Absolutely not. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Although, know, we'll given the fact that you don't know a lot about New Jersey comp, and maybe, maybe I can. Oh, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm not a risk. Maybe I'm not a risk. Um, but for all our Jersey, our Jersey audience here today, um, you know, bone up on permanency because it's probably going to be. Oh, it's definitely about. some questions that are involved with permanency. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so given given a lesson uh, here today from Professor Jones on New Jersey permanency, um, he will be available uh, to meet at the New North Jersey Claims Association if you are in attendance. Um, so please let us know if you are interested in attending. We can show you how to do that. Absolutely. Okay, that brings us to the end of the Third Fridays podcast. I am Christian Cisan, reminding you to defend from day one. Defend from day one.